when he came to Athens. We're walking on the very ground that the Apostle Paul first came to when he was going to tell the world about Jesus. And when Paul walks around here, it says that he was disturbed because he saw that they were very religious. There's altars here to all different kinds of gods. There's an altar to Zeus. There's a temple to Ares, the god of war. There's a temple to the 12 gods. The whole agora is centered around. There's even an altar to an unknown god. Now I want you to think about the kind of sentiment, the feelings behind that. People were so on edge, so worried about not honoring the gods and ticking them off that they even put up an altar to the unknown god. And Paul says it's about that god. I want to talk to you about now because Paul, a Jew, knows that the one true God created all things and sustains and holds us by love. And this God is not easily offended, some easily offended deity in the sky just waiting for us to make this God mad. Instead, this God is the one who is searching for us, even now. Upon a time, there was a cave woman. And outside of this cave woman's cave there were plants and over time the cave family began to realize that their lives were dependent on those plants that were growing and they began to realize that those plants were dependent on these balls of fire this ball of fire in the sky and and rain water that would fall from the sky and sometimes she could tell when the water was going to come and sometimes it would just come suddenly but they realized they were dependent in order to stay alive dependent on forces outside of themselves this cave woman also began to realize that her body was somehow in tune with these forces in the sky that these, the sun, the ball of fire would go around, you know, that she would see it 30 different times. And that her somehow, her internal workings were related to that. Notice how articulate I'm being right now. That she was somehow connected to outside forces. Now this cave woman had a cave husband. And the cave husband would go off and would hunt with his friends. He would come back sometimes in a short amount of time with a kill. Sometimes it would take a long time and he would have a kill or wouldn't have a kill. But they began to tell stories. And all this began to add up to the fact that they were very vulnerable in the universe and there were certain things that they depended on. And so the stories that they begin to tell is what we now call religion. Right? That basically, and this is true, you know, 40... 40,000 years ago, um, we know, anthropologists know, humans started burying their dead. That's something that started happening 45, or 40,000 years ago. 9,500 years ago, as far as um, archaeologists can tell, in southeast Turkey is the first altar that was ever created. And there's just tons and tons of blood on this altar from sacrifices. Some of it, turns out, is human blood. Um, cultures, anthropologists have discovered for thousands of years have been making sense of these forces that they are dependent on and they have so many names they talk about all the different kind of um, gods that there have been throughout human history by the way interesting side note every human culture has had a god for beer which i think is really awesome like um every human culture has had a, a, a god for beer and there's basically been this idea that the good things in life we want to think 
this power that we're dependent on for. But also, we want to make sure that those powers don't stop giving us favor, right? And this created a huge anxiety in people. Because ultimately, you know, if you get a good crop, then you're supposed to give some of that crop back because this is, you know, you're dependent on the rain and the sun and those kind of things or whatever the names you were you called for it. So you'd give it like a portion of the crop. But then if you didn't get it next time, it must be because those gods were mad at you. So you would give them more. And ultimately, it even led to human sacrifice and child sacrifice because what's the greatest thing that you could give but your children? And and this is what religion has done throughout the years. There's this brilliant atheist, a guy named Feuerbach. I don't think that's how you say his name, but that's how I'm going to say it. Feuerbach, who actually said this was his great searing insight about all religion everywhere, is that humans make gods in their own image. We feel very vulnerable, and so we project, and we say, you know what, if I was God, I would do things like this. All the different gods that are out there, if I was God, I would do things like this. If I was God, I would want, you know, I would, if I gave them sun and rain, I would want them to give me something back. And so we make gods in our own image, and there's a guy named Karl Barth, who is one of the greatest theologians ever, and his great insight was, he said, Feuerbach is right, and that is the true point of departure for all Christian faith. Not to disagree with that, but to say, God, the God who is revealed in Jesus Christ is not a God that we made. Yes, humans create all kinds of religions. We make God in our own image, but this is not that. This is a God that we would not have created. This is a God that we could not have created. If you want a God who celebrates your race, you don't want the Christian God. And Karl Barth was writing in the age of Hitler. Karl Barth knew what happened if you take Feuerbach's idea, if you project yourself onto God. Karl Barth said, if you want a God that worships your race, worships your strengths, and and ignores your weaknesses, you don't want this God. But this is the God of the Bible, and it is the God that actually exists. So we're talking about Christians make the best atheists, and I'm not trying to be cute with that title. I mean every word of it. The Christians flourished in a world that had millions of gods. They worshipped all different kinds of gods. And nobody in that age would have ever thought to say, I don't believe in that God. They would never have said that. They might say, I don't serve that God, or I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to be loyal to that God. That's not my God. That's your, your territorial God or whatever. But they would never have thought to say, I don't believe in that God. That is a, the skepticism that the early Christians gave the world was a real gift. And it might have gone a little too far. So in the book of Isaiah, or really all the prophets, one of the most damning things that the prophets can say about idolatry is that if you worship the idols, if you worship false gods, you will become like them. That ultimately, the worst thing in the Bible God can do is give you exactly what you want. And if you worship false gods, you become like those idols. Specifically, and this is what they say over and over again, if you worship false gods, you will have ears to hear, but you cannot hear. You will have eyes to see, and you cannot see. Okay, so this may be a little dense, but I'm just going to go for it because I'm immersed in this. There's this guy named Charles Taylor. He's a Canadian philosopher. You know what I'm saying. He's a philosopher. He's a Canadian philosopher, and he wrote this 800 book called A Secular Age, and in it, he basically answers this question. This is the whole 800 pages, and people who aren't Christians, people are atheists. He's won all kinds of awards for this book. It's an dense philosophical work that's brilliant. I I don't understand most of what I've read, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, the whole book is addressing the question, why is it possible today 
to not believe in God. And 500, 500 years ago, it was totally impossible. It was impossible to not believe in God. Why is it all of a sudden possible to believe, not believe in God? And before, it wasn't possible. And he says that most of us tell ourselves a subtraction story that basically goes like this. We used to believe in, um, um, here's, here's the way he does it. I'm wearing my contacts, and this is prescription glasses, so this is kind of crazy right now. But he says that most of us tell a subtraction story where we say, we used to believe in things like uh, fairies and demons and elves and God and all those kind of things. But then we stopped believing that because of science or whatever, and we just took that way of life off, right? The subtraction story. That's what most people who have deconverted tell themselves. But Charles Taylor spends 800 pages making a very compelling argument that he says, no, it's not actually a subtraction story. It's not that you're just taking off that way of looking at life, but actually you're putting on another way of looking at life. And the way that you're looking, the way of life that you have put on, he spent, you know, over the course of 500 years is actually not, it is also a very complex set of beliefs a system of, of thinking that is, it, it requires huge steps of um, faith that does not have empirical data behind it, but we just do not, um, we don't admit that. And so, like, one of the ways we do that is evolution. When I was doing this series at Highland, um, I took out a couple of my elders who teach at ACU and they're, you know, biology and um, uh, science professors, and I was basically like, look, I was homeschooled. My version of science was Genesis growing up. So tell me about this so I, I can understand, like, what, tell me about what evolution and how it squares with the Christian faith and those kind of things. And um, Brother Jim, Dr. Nichols, I'll call him, so you'll know he's really smart. Brother Jim, he said, um, there are two kinds of evolution. One is accepted by 99.9% of the scientists that he knows. Um, that, that one is backed by hard scientific data. And he said, John, that if you talk against that you're going to look like a dumb-dumb. So I didn't talk against that. And he said, but the other part, and this is the part that's wildly kind of like, uh, talk, when we think about it, we, we think about this. The other part is, is a religious claim. It's a religious and philosophical claim. Evolutionary um, philosophy is a totally different story. In fact, evolutionary philosophy and religion is the reason that Christians may sound like real you know, uh, anti-science and stuff because they dig their heels in and maybe for a good reason, because often what people are doing is trying to use scientific things to make very, um, very faith-filled claims. Like, for example, people have taken good hardcore science and they've made religious conclusions like uh, the problem with evolution is not so much about what it says about the past. It's about what we try to make it say about the future. It's, it's when we, like, for example, say, well, then humans are animals. You realize that that's what Adolf Hitler did, right? Nature is cruel, he said, therefore we can be cruel. That it, when we use evolution to say, well, that means some people are more advanced and better and more evolved than others. That's actually a thing people have been trying to do with evolution. Like eugenics was in, in the Nazi project. It's not that science makes people stop believing in God. Science can only test empirical evidence. God is outside of empirical evidence. You cannot measure or um, test that. But here's the thing. You believe, everybody believes in certain things that there is no empirical evidence for. You cannot put human rights in a test tube. You cannot put human dignity in a test tube. And what um, Charles Taylor is basically saying is stop lying to yourself. Your, Your subtraction story isn't real. 
You're, uh, you're actually replacing it with another complex set of belief. And so we, what, he call, he, what he talks about is how we've created a buffered self. This is how he says it. A buffered self that has prevented us from being able to experience things that did not stop existing, that are still there. But over the last 500 years, we have created a barrier between us and the reality that has gone before us. And now, and this is what he spends 800 pages saying, we cannot see or hear God. So what does this look like? So I need Brian to come up here. Brian, um, pick somebody to come with you. Cameron, okay, great. So we're going to do the whisper challenge, if you've seen this on J- uh, Jimmy Fallon. Um, do you know what your whisper challenge is? I, I think so. Okay, so put this on, and we're just going to take turns. So they have not seen these cards. They are <laughs> Don't set me up like that. Um, so they have not seen these cards. You're going to whisper on Mike. Um, I'm, he's going to be h- hearing music playing really loud, and then you're just going to take turns seeing if you can get what y'all are saying. All right, hold on. Let me get the music playing. You ready? Okay. It's mbop for what it's worth. <laughs> Yeah, okay, okay. Well, actually, right. you try. You all go. Right, all, right, cool. all right. Was it a hard choice? It was a hard choice. You got it. Yeah, it was a hard choice. It was hard choice. Hard choice. Okay, you ready? There's yours. Are you showing anything? You're showing it to him, Brian. Slinky. 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 I can't even hear anyone laughing. Slinky. Slinky. It's not anywhere close to shame. Slinky. Close, but no. Slinky. Slinky. <laughs> okay, try another one. It was... Okay. You moved my cheese. You moved my cheese. You moved my cheese. You're being very loud. You moved It's the whisper challenge. cheese. You moved my cheese. I'm too distracted by this song. <laughs> it is. Okay. All right. Here, try it with him. Does someone again. else want to try? Anybody want to try? Come on. Come on up. You moved my cheese, Cameron. Is what it was. Give it up for Cameron. I work with deaf people. This is going to be fun. Okay. All right. There you go. Brian, you're showing the card. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow, that is loud. 
Is it going? All right. I was about to say it. Unlike Cameron. <laughs> Don't hide my dragon. Don't hide my dragon. First word, yes. Don't hide my dragon. Don't hide my <laughs> dragon. Don't hide my dragon. Don't hide my dragon. <laughs> it's a classic. It's a classic. All right, let's give it up for them. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. It was Don't Hide My Dragon. That was the... I didn't come up with these either for what it's worth. Okay, so here's the point of all that. Like, there was something being said, and you could not tell what it was. It was clearly... I mean, it was being said. Brian was way more than whispering it. But you could not tell what it was. And it's not because there wasn't something being said. It was because you had too much other stuff going on. This is the critique of idol worship in the Bible. And a huge thing, a huge reason why you should at least be self-aware. Is it possible that the reason you don't hear the voice of God in your life is not because God isn't saying something? But because we have fought, bent our knees to other gods. Um, in fact, when... You can't hear God's voice, or when it's a very dull thing, what you wind up doing is making another version. Which I think, for Christians, we need to be hyper-aware that the greatest danger for idolatry for a lot of us is God. And you're not the first person to struggle with. Remember when Moses is up on the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he comes back down, and um, Aaron has made what? A golden calf. Do you remember what Aaron says to Israelites? He says, worship the God who brought you out of Egypt. He's not trying to get a new God. He's saying this is God. And here's the thing. The calf was the symbol of power in Egypt. Because I don't know about you, when I think cow, I think power. And so they had created this, and it was a way not of, of totally replacing God, but of minimizing God to only one of God's attributes. Have you ever noticed you like a certain version of Jesus? Have you ever noticed that? The Jesus you like is for the wars you're for and against the wars you're... The Jesus you like is the, probably votes the same way you do, has the same kind of, like, ethic that you do. And there are other Christians that make you really uncomfortable and mad because they talk about stuff. And the bothersome thing is Jesus actually said that stuff, but they just don't know how to read the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? The problem that we face in a world full of idols is that God became human. And this God was wild. You could not place this God in any particular category. Jesus says things like, blessed are the peacemakers in one moment. And then he says in another moment, like, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. Like, hey, be quiet, Jesus. That's a little disturbing. Jesus, you know, he, um, the, the, the Jesus of the Gospels is a paradox. There's these tensions all over the place. Jesus of the Gospels, each with uh, tax collectors and, and sexually immoral people. And we love, sometimes we love to talk about that, but we refuse to point out that that Jesus called a radically new, like, sexual ethic. Like, he turns around almost immediately after having a meal with him and says, and you shouldn't get divorced. I mean, it's crazy stuff. Like, Jesus is all over the map. And the thing is, like, Jesus is radically egalitarian and hierarchical. 
Jesus, you know, the Jesus of the Gospels has um, a very, he, he demands so much. He is gentle and impatient, extraordinary, charitable, and extremely judgmental. He sets impossible standards and then forgives the worst of sinners. He's superhuman one moment and he's weeping the next. Christian orthodoxy has always tried to, for 2,000 years, it has tried to be faithful to the whole person of Jesus. Here's the trouble that we have today. And this is like a, a problem that's been for the last 50 years. In 2005, there's these sociologists who study the Christian religion in the West. And they, call, they said that what has happened is we have passed on a pathetic version of Christianity from one generation to the next. Over the last 50 years, so not... Um, and basically, they, they, they coined the term in, in 2005, um, therapeutic moralistic deism. That what we passed on was not Christianity, not what the, has been worshipped, the God who's been worshipped for 2,000 years, but a pathetic version of Christianity that had five main principles. One, this God exists and created, ordered the world, and watches over human life, right? Two, God wants people to be happy, good, and nice. And fair to each other. Three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. God does not need to be particularly involved in your life, except when you need God to solve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. And coincidentally, if you believe in that God, it changes how you live. Um, Not just this generation, but a lot of different generations. Um, 60% of college students today are more likely to be narcissists than 20 years ago. Um, narcissists answer things like if I, they say yes to questions like, if I ruled the world, it would be better. Or people should be envious of me. If, if you're sitting next to someone, you consider that. Just go ahead and give them an elbow right now. But this is not something new. This is something we have inherited. Um, when, when I was in high school, I dated, uh, my first ever girlfriend was Ashley. And Ashley had everything that I really needed in a girlfriend. I mean, I, was, uh, I had very high criteria. One, other people could see her, so she was real. <laughs> and two, she thought that I was moderately attractive. And so we dated for a while, and ultimately, Ashley's family moved to Colorado, and I lived in Arkansas. And so I called Ashley all the time, long distance, back when it cost a lot of money to call long distance, and then my parents got the phone bill, and they totally canceled our long distance because they don't get love, right? And then ultimately, that left me in the, in the early 90s having to um, make mixtapes. Do you remember that? So I made mixtapes, and then I would put it in the mail, and it was so bad. I would, like play, I would record from a CD onto the tape, and I would sing along to, I swear... <laughs> Thank you, Denise. It's me and you, Denise. <laughs> And then I would say in between the songs, like, hey, Ashley, I just miss you so much, babe. I just want you to know, you know, our, our love can't separate us from thousands of miles and all those kind of things. And, and then I would put that in the federal mail. <laughs> and every night I would get down on my knees and I would pray. And let me tell you what I prayed. I can tell you what I pray now. I pray, dear God, don't please let Ashley have destroyed those tapes. <laughs> but I would pray, dear God, please, if you're there. Make Ashley marry me. And also, I'd like to be an astronaut. <laughs> and that did not happen. Uh, I thank God for that, because one, I'm scared of heights, and I think the Spirit intercedes and says, hey, he, he, he would not be a very good astronaut. But also, I thank God for that, because I'm not, I had no idea what, in God's sovereignty, God saw coming forward. And um, at the time, I thought, but here's the thing. If God gave you everything you want, it is not a blessing. In the Bible... 
It's the worst thing that can happen to you. We don't need a religion where we are right. We need one where we're wrong. And that's why this, like the places where Jesus makes you uncomfortable, dig into that. Find out. Not, not because um, Jesus is standing against you, but because God is really real. God really came into this earth. And this God might not have everything that's on your agenda. And that might actually be the place where God could bless you the most. Okay, so here's the interesting thing. And then we're going to kind of shift into another part of the sermon. Um, the interesting thing is when, when foreign armies would capture Israel, when they would go into Jerusalem and they would go into the temple, they would go into the Holy of Holies, they would immediately be shocked because what did they find? In the Holy of Holies in the temple, where everybody else had their giant like statues of the representation of their God, when they went into the Holy of Holies, they thought they would see that, and what did they find instead? Huh? Nothing. In, inside the ark, Nothing. I mean, I think it is a huge thing that we have to pay attention to that God from the very beginning was like, no, 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 no. You do not make an idol or statue of me. Instead, the word idol is what God does when he makes us. So God says, don't make an image of me. I have made an image of myself in you. And the way that's shaped over 2,000 years of Christian history is when you gather together for church. When you gather to take communion, um, the Christians make the best atheists. What I mean by that is that Christians don't believe in those gods that dehumanize. We actually think that if you worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the revealed in Jesus, you actually become more human and you're able to treat other people better as humans. So I'm just thinking of a few communion stories. Maybe in your small group you can talk about these. But um, when I first got to Highland, there was a guy named Brother Roy. Brother Roy was uh, mentally handicapped. He uh, he would wake up every Sunday morning at like 4.30 so he could walk to Highland, so he could pass out communion. A few times he got had to be um, disciplined because he would also sometimes take money out of the offering plate. But for the most part, he just passed. And it was, meant so much to him. It meant so much to me. It meant so much to a lot of us. Brother Roy loved passing out communion. There's this guy at Highland um, named Daryl, who's one of my favorites, meth addict for a long time. Actually, he's from California. Moved to Abilene 15 years ago, got clean, um, and he wears sweatpants every Sunday morning to church. Love Daryl wearing sweatpants, and he passes out communion. Daryl um, has some social stuff. Um, it, he, he's in a church where there's a lot of people who are, you know, smart and, and things like that, and Daryl is one of the ways God saves them, I think. So, passes out communion every week. One Sunday, there was a big thing at Highland. A lot of people were there. And Daryl's there with his sweatpants on, like always, passing out communion. And this, like, woman who's, like, very wealthy, upper middle class, maybe upper class, gets communion. And she says, excuse me, is this gluten-free? Daryl is like, oh, yeah, yeah. They're not going to charge you for this. And then just keeps on walking on. <laughs> One of my favorite stories. I grew up in a church of 10 people. And I've told you all before, uh, Brian was Down syndrome. Brian uh, led worship every time the doors were open. He would, you know, uh, he would do the thing that you just did, Brandon. Um, but it, had, it had no connection to reality. It had no, <laughs> he would do it. And then um, he would pray. He would always do the closing prayer. And he would pray and he would make a passive-aggressive move to tell God where we were going to eat afterwards. So he would bless the food in the closing prayer. 
Hey, so he'd always pray, dear God, thank you for uh, Lothan and Foy and Nina. And then he would say, and we're going to go to Taco Bell, and I would like to bless my chalupa. And it tended to work. That's where we would go eat afterwards. And then Brian also would do communion. He would not pray for communion because we know what those prayers sounded like. But he would stand up there with the person who was doing communion, and then he would pass it out. And then one day we had a guy visiting, and um, we asked him to preside over communion. So he does, and the guy's standing here presiding over communion, and he prays for the bread and then pass it out. And then he sees Brian is there, and you know how it's supposed to work. Like, well, okay, then it's you. So he asked Brian to pray for communion, and all of us here are like, no, because we don't want God to pray over the fruit of the vine with a chalupa mixed in. And Brian bends, bows his head, and he prays. Dear God, thank you for the blood and the cup. We know it hurt you. Amen. Yeah, it was just so powerful. The most secular people I know believe in humanistic values, and I praise God for that. I, I, I think they, they um, believe that you should treat people well. You shouldn't trample people's rights. Every human being ought to be treated with dignity. We shouldn't oppress people. We should share our goods and our power. Most of us believe that, but why do we believe that? It's because we have a certain view of reality that I'm going to try to argue in the next 15 minutes is because of the stewards of the gospel that the church is. I mean, if, if there is no such thing as a, a world outside of this one, if the natural world is all there is, then why should you not, why should you not trample the rights of the poor? There was an article in the New York Times last year that I, I think illustrates this really well. Um, New York Times article, it was a comment, a, a comment that was written on this article, if you could put that up. It talks about how when the Hubble Space Telescope pointed to a black spot in the sky about the size of an eraser for a week, it found 30,000 galaxies over 13 billion years old with many trillions of stars and many more trillions of inferred planets. So how significant are you? You're not a unique snowflake. You're not special. You are just another piece of decaying matters on the compost pile of this world. This guy should write greeting cards, I think. Nothing of who you are and what you will do in the short time you're here will matter. Everything short of that realization is vanity. So, celebrate life in every moment. Admire its wonders and love people without reservation. I don't know how the English language works for you, but most of the time for me, the word so is, you know, goes after something and connects it to something else. And in this moment, that does not make sense because at first this comment has like a, you know, a no holds bar bracing view of, of realism of naturalistic reductionism, that basically this is all there is. If you can see it and touch it, taste it, that's it. And, and then, like, it's this brave, courageous, like, this is the way things are. And then all of a sudden, it just switches into, honestly, sentiment, just sentimentality. Because if you want to know what the so should be after that, and this is, I don't think this is very contestable, the so after that should be, so honestly, it doesn't, in the grand scheme of things, matter if you're a homicidal maniac or Mother Teresa. If that's the way things, you're a compost pile of decaying matter, then why? This is the problem with reality. And, and honestly, the, the problem with reality is these days we tell ourselves this kind of story. 13.8 billion years ago, there was a singularity, and then one thing led to another, and then Taylor Swift showed up. Right, like that's the way we tell it. That's the kind of leap we make these days. But if you're just a decaying matter on a pile of compost in a grand, I mean, this giant universe, why does it matter? It doesn't really. There's one Russian philosopher, I can't even pronounce his name, who makes fun of this whole thing in the West. And he says, humans descended from apes, therefore love one another. 
Like, no, it doesn't work. And by the way, if that works for you, I'm glad it works for you. If you believe in humanistic values, if you know people have walked away from faith in God and they still hold humanistic value, praise God. I'm glad they do. The more people that do, the better things are. But it is a giant leap of faith from the secular view of reality we have from the way they're actually living. And you want to know who's going to tell you this? Frederick Nietzsche. Frederick Nietzsche is my favorite atheist. Nietzsche is, uh, he was this pastor's kid growing up in what was becoming post-Christian Germany. And Nietzsche looked at this. He looked at the ways that people were increasingly saying, I don't believe in God and all those things. And then he would hear them say things about how you should love one another. And he called them out on it. He said, look, if you, if you say I'm an atheist, but we shouldn't like, you know, trample the rights of the poor or we should honor each other. You're not an atheist. Don't lie to yourself. You're a Christian. Because those ideas came from Christianity and a Christian view of reality, uh, of a God who made everything and said everyone is this God's children. Nietzsche said those ideas make sense when you believe in the Christian story, but if you don't believe in it, that, those ideas don't make sense anymore. According to Nietzsche, the problem in the world isn't evil. That's a Christian idea. The problem that, the world, that ISIS is evil, that's a Christian idea. The problem, honestly, with this no-hold-bars view of reality, if that's really the way things are, the problem isn't evil. The problem is weakness. Right? Uh, the, the problem is that we let, you know, weak people live past their usefulness, right? And so Nietzsche actually said things like a sick person is a, a parasite on society. And doctors, when they see sick people who aren't going to be able to re, be re- rehabilitated and useful again, they should show them the face of disgust, not give them prescriptions. I, I've had that doctor, by the way, but I, I think he's right. I think Nietzsche's right. I do not think you can come up with a compelling argument against Nietzsche outside of Jesus. But I think Jesus is a pretty compelling one. And I'm grateful for all the atheists and humanists and people who don't believe in God, who hold humanistic values. But I just want to say, and I mean this unequivocally, the reason why is because Christians make the best atheists. I'm just going to tell you three stories, and this is going to close. But a couple of them are stories that you've heard before. I just want you to see them in a little bit different way. Every gospel tells the story about how when Jesus was about to be crucified. Peter betrayed him. The Gospel of Mark tells us that when Peter sees Jesus, he begins to weep. He begins to cry. He realizes what he's done. The philosophy David Bent, philosophy person, a philosopher David Bentley Hart talks about how when the ancient people would have read that story about the tears of Peter, they would have been so confused. He says there's not another story like that in all of ancient literature. It would have been like a categorical error to hear about the tears of this rustic fisherman nobody. It would be like somebody trying to describe to you the feelings of a possum. It just wouldn't make sense because in the world that story was written, um, there was a word for persona meant to have a face. And that word did not apply to everybody. It didn't even apply to most people. It applied, it was a legal term, it meant to have a standing before the law, and it meant for a very few amount of people in the world, mostly Roman citizens, mostly upper class Roman citizens, that they could stand before the law and be tried. But for everybody else, that wasn't the case. They were persona, they didn't have a face. They had no legal standing. And in this story, Peter is a nobody. He's not even, he doesn't even rise to the level of Greek tragedy. He's a nobody. 
And yet here it is, the gospel's attending to the tears of Peter. And here's what I want you to see. This story that you're so familiar with, it's not shocking to you at all, is not just a violation of taste, it is an act of rebellion. You're seeing something beginning to emerge in this very first story that is unlike anything that had ever happened in the world before. Our very ability to speak of human rights or persons is because of this Christian revolution. We throw around the word personhood all the time when we're talking about race or social status or sex or gender or whatever. It had a very limited application. In the world, Mark sits down and writes that in. The, it did not have the application you have. It, 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 nothing close to the application you have. No ancient text is trying to tell us about this nobody and how this nobody feels that they have uh, feels like they do after they have betrayed the very person they're supposed to be following. Uh, it's categorical error on every level. Or how about this story? There's a time in the gospel where Jesus is at the temple and he's with his disciples, and there's this widow who shows up at the temple and she's so poor she has like pennies that's it and everybody else is giving some money and they're not that rich and you know they're an oppressed palestine world rome's taking all their money so they're giving money that they have but they've got a lot more than she does and jesus calls his disciples over and he points this woman out as she gives her last two mites i don't know about you but you're in a church building probably that was funded by those two mites Every capital campaign, that woman has funded every capital campaign in church history. You want to know why? Because God was watching her and taught us to see her. Taught us to take great joy in her. Her her meager sacrifice is multiplied exponentially. Did you know that in the ancient world, dignity was, um, it was not inherent. It was a tribute, it was acquired which meant that some people were deemed more fully human than others. Infants who were born with physical defects, you just got rid of them. Um, There was a Plato, as famous as Plato said, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live. The first Christians were the only ones in their time, and really the time before that, that fought against exposure. Did you know that if you were a young girl, a baby girl born... um, uh, that there was this huge disproportional amount of men and women in the ancient world because what they would do is if you were a, a baby girl, they would often take you into the woods and leave you. They discarded unwanted babies. There's, and, and here's what I would like you to get. It's not monsters who are doing this. It is totally socially acceptable. Not just acceptable. There's no shame in it. This is just part of what it means to live in the world. You know, it's very practical. And yeah, there might be a little sadness because you'd carried this child for nine months. And but it was totally acceptable. Culturally, there were, there were, this was an institution. So here's what I want you to see. There's this um, one guy from the first century named Hilarion who writes back to his wife this very casual attitude. And he calls his wife sweet things. He talks about his older boy, tell, you know, tells him, tell him I love him. Um, and then he says, if the baby is born while I'm away, and if it's a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, cast it out. And then he talks about, and I love you, sugar britches, basically is what he ends the thing saying. He's a normal person. He's not a monster. He loves his family. He loves his wife. And pers- discarding unwanted children was exactly what everybody was doing. One estimate was that the, um, the slave market in ancient Rome actually came from people going into the woods and finding babies. The brothels came from people going into the woods and finding babies. But there became a group of people who started going into the woods to rescue babies that weren't rescuing them for their use. One of those babies grew up 
His name was Shepherd of Hermas. And he wrote a sentence in the third century that had never before been written in history. He said, all babies are glorious before God. Nobody had ever thought like that before. That was how the gods wanted it. Until one more story, and this one you probably haven't heard. There was a guy named Julian the Apostate who was always a little bit bummed about his last name. Julian was the um, Constantine. He was his nephew. Constantine, the guy who brings Christianity, makes it legal and official and all those kind of things. Constantine um, has a son named Constantine II, creatively named. And Constantine II is so nervous about uh, the stability of his kingdom that he decides to kill all his relatives. So he kills... Julian's mom and dad and his siblings, but for some reason he lets Julian uh, live a lot, stay alive because he wants um, he, he he wants to make sure his throne is secure. But ultimately, Constantine II dies as well, and Julian the Apostate is the only person living. And Julian hates Christianity for reasons you would hate Christianity. They had been so cruel; they had killed people in the name of this Christian empire. They had killed people. They had done all these horrible things. He had seen the hypocrisy. He hated Christianity, but not just because of the hypocrisy, but also because of he was drawn back to the old pagan religions, the, the festivals of Zeus, the festivals of Aphrodite. Those things he was drawn back to, and so he made Christianity illegal in the third century, and ultimately tried to enforce reviving the old pagan religions. So he had always dreamed of being a part of the festival of Zeus. <clears throat> and um, he creates this thing, hires all these Zeus priests to come back, and he goes to the temple of Zeus for the festival, expecting there to be thousands of people. And it's just him and this old Zeus priest and a goose. And he's so mad. Julian's so mad that he sits down and he writes a letter to all the priests of Zeus. And he tells them, you know what's wrong? The reason we can't get anybody to come back to this is because, and look at this, what he says. He says, the reason that people aren't coming back to the old pagan religions, if you could put that quote up, he says, is because atheism, the Christians, atheism, the Christians, has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It's a scandal. There's not a single Jew who is a barrier and that beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. He says to all of them, we got to start helping the poor. we got to start helping those people. And here's what I want you to see. That had never before been in human history a metric for success for what a religion should do. Julian, in this moment, is trying to say, like, we got to you know, do this better than the Christians. And he has no idea how deeply Christian his imagination has become. So a few years ago, I saw this picture on the Huffington Post. It was actually a homeless guy in California. Um, I thought this was genius. Which religion cares more about the homeless? And then he put out Muslim, atheist, Buddhist, Christian, pagan, agnostic, spiritual. That, my friends, is capitalism. And he's really good at it. Uh, I love that whole thing. The whole world. And, and by the way, do you notice that the atheist has the most? I, I love this. I love that the whole world cares about this now. I just want to say it's for one reason. Because Christians make the best atheists. For real, atheists are some of the most noble humanitarian people I know often. They care about good things, Jesus kind of things. But Nietzsche's going to catch up with us. Nietzsche is starting to catch up with us. 
Last year in the Washington Post, they quoted this um, very influential atheist and philosopher named Jürgen Habermas, who said, Christianity and nothing else is the ultimate foundation of liberty, conscience, human rights, democracy, benchmarks of Western civilization. To this day, we have no other options than Christianity. We continue to nourish ourselves from this source. Everything else is postmodern chatter. You want to know why Julian thought it was the right thing to do? Why you think it's the right thing to do? Why people that you know who don't believe in God or Jesus or anything, they still think it's the right thing to do? It's because 2,000 years ago, the first Christians turned and faced the West and spit. And they renounced those gods, the gods that dehumanize, the gods that try to use other people. They said God was, wasn't like that. And because they didn't believe in those gods, they lived and died as atheists. They, they went into you know, temples and they vandalized those things because those things were the ones that robbed the, the image of God on the actual people. And in the rubble of those statues of those idols, they discovered a face. They discovered a persona that everybody matters before God, that all babies matter before God. And this new movement of God who became a human being gave a face to the faceless. You know, a lot of things bad happened when Constantine came along. But in Constantine, when he said, okay, if we're going to be Christian, we've got to figure out exactly what Christian is. So he called all the different Christian leaders together and he said, what does it mean to be a Christian? And for the first time in human history, a group of people sat down and said, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean for God to become a human? Not just a human, but a poor peasant human. Then they realized God is like that. God became like us. Humanism, human rights, the idea that God is love, the idea that God wants you to love other people, love really everyone, especially the people that you tend not to want to love, that started right there. Do you know that's what Jesus did for the world? Did you know that in the pagan world, you didn't go to temple every week. You didn't go together with other people who worship like you did every week. That was a uniquely Christian invention, along with the Jewish people who gathered on Saturday. They started together on Sunday every week. And when they gathered for communion, they oriented the tables because the tables in the temples of the other gods faced west. They oriented their tables towards the east. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul makes a really big deal about this. I'm not, I don't have time to read it, but he, in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, Paul does this giant thing about like, your table is different than the table of the idols. And he goes on to talk about, so don't you dare exploit the poor. Don't you dare eat your food and not share it with other people who are poor or who are working or are slaves or whatever. Um, and in the ancient world, the tables that everybody had, everybody said according to status. You, you, you know, if you were important, you sat here. They demolished those kinds of tables. About, Paul is saying he's coming up with a new kind of table, a new kind of community. And in a world where this was about 30 people in a, a little, probably, uh, house church in Corinth, people that were slaves, ex-prostitutes, women and men of status, Paul says to them, you don't eat like that. You don't eat, you don't act like that. Because you have a different table. Because you're not creating this God. This God created you. Do you know, Christian, that every week when you gather and break bread, you are stewards of a gospel that has changed the course of human history, that is still alive and well, that gave a face to the faceless. So Brother Roy would get up at 4.30 on Sunday because he just loved to pass out communion. And Daryl said, no, it's free. 
They won't charge you for this. And Brian prayed, God, thank you for the blood and the cup. We know it hurt you. Amen. And the table moved from west to east. And the world knows she's loved. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for this message. Thank you for this life. Thank you for entering our world, for being a God that we could not create, that we would not have dreamed of creating. God, may we steward this gospel well. May we, with the way we break bread, with the tables that we share, may the way we treat each other and the way we treat other people, specifically people that we wouldn't want to love and care for, would you show the world again what you're like? In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.